0: Hello. Good evening, everybody. My name's is Chris and I'm an alcoholic. Well, I want to make sure I start off, and I thank the committee um, for allowing me to share here. I keep looking because I'm like, that is freaking me out. Um, those, those large screens, they're all well and good until you reach a certain age. Um, and then I'm 52 years old and I keep going, you know, I have reached the used car years of my life. From a distance, everything looks okay. Up close, you can tell the vehicle was not well cared for. So it's, I'm like, but... Um, With that said, I would like to thank the committee and everyone that was involved in asking me to come and share here this weekend. This is just like my friend Butch said. What an honor. What an amazing honor. Um, And I'm incredibly honored as well to step into the amazing, divine, love-filled space that my friend Butch created for us earlier tonight. Um, You could actually, yeah... You know, I hope you were here, and if you weren't, what happened was a man stood up here and told his story, and the room just filled up with love and then filled up more with love and then filled up more with love and filled up more with love, and that's why I'm stepping into a space that no way could I create on my own. But Butch has such a beautiful, beautiful way of doing. And the first time that I ever met him was actually here in Minnesota several years ago. We spoke at a conference. That it's my understanding it's no longer um, going on at Hiawatha Land. And uh, and. I was very brand new to this type of thing and didn't know what was going on and was not watching what was going on in my peripheral, and Butch saw it, and Butch scooped me away and took me away for ice cream and explained to me how everything worked, so I owe him a lot, um, and we've become dear friends ever since then, but I am unapologetically delighted to be here with all of you tonight. And the reason that I say unapologetically is because it has nothing to do with the fact that I want to hear myself talk. Right now in Ohio it's 11:15. I should have been in bed an hour and a half ago. Okay? So and I know what what's really getting to me, I know there's a bunch of people in bed right now watching this on TV. That's how you all roll in Minnesota. I'm like, wow, I like the way they do recovery here. You You can be in your jammies and still go to the meeting. Now, what I want those people to know is, I can see you too. I know what you're doing. And you know what? There is some alcoholic out there now that just took that as a challenge, and he's looking at his girlfriend going, we are about to get our freak on. (laughs) She thinks she knows what we're doing, you know? And I just, all these things are running through my head right now. So hopefully, um... And you'll see, that's pretty much how it works from here on out. Um, but... I'm really, as I said, I'm unapologetically delighted, and I'll get to honestly why. And the reason is, is that women that live like I did, that did the things that I did, that went the places that I went and ran with the people that I ran with, we usually wind up in an unmarked grave. Not in a beautiful conference center on a Friday night, you know, with almost 4,000 new friends and family members. You know, and I'm also delighted to be here because I know for a fact what I did out there was not what got me a seat in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know for a fact it was the grace and the power of a loving God that I didn't even believe in is what brought me here and got me a seat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous on October 29th of 1994. And for that... For that I will never be able to be grateful enough. But what I want to tell you is that doesn't mean I have 19 years of knowledge. I don't have 19 years of wisdom. All I have is 19 years of experience. And some of that experience tonight, as it unfolds, it will probably show you the incredible and miraculous power of the 12 Steps, our program of action, and how they can change a person. And some of that experience will also show you the incredible power of self-will run riot while walking through the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is for that reason that I have to be more strongly sponsored now than I have ever been since I first walked into a meeting of AA. You know, I have come from a family of sponsorship that I truly believe is one of the strongest lines of female sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous today. Those ladies carried the right message in the right way at the right time when I was sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, had not had a drink in 10 years, and was dying of untreated alcoholism. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I hope you never reach that space because it's a desperation, a darkness, and a despair such as I had never known. I had not had a drink in 10 years, and suicide was suddenly becoming an option one more time in my life. You know, and I understand how that all happened now, but I certainly didn't know then. But I'm at a point in my recovery now where I'm, it's imperative that I'm strongly sponsored, and the reason for that is, is my life is, is exactly what you told me it would be in my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's beyond my wildest dreams. And that is not to say that I live in this big, giant, fancy house. It's not to say that I drive a brand new car. It's not to say that, you know, I have this six-figure-a-year income. What it's to say is the life that is beyond my wildest dreams is I have things that money can't buy. I can walk into a room and I have some integrity. I can walk into a room and I don't have to worry about who I'm going to see or what I might have done to somebody that's standing in this room. I'm a woman that went all the places that a woman can go and did all the things that a woman could do in the throes of alcoholism. And I can walk into a room for the first time ever in my life because of all of you, and I don't have to feel all that guilt, shame, and remorse. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. But see, there's a problem with that. Because I'm that keen alcoholic that Butch mentioned, um, and what will happen is my life's going good. All of a sudden, that little voice in my head will start saying, maybe you weren't that bad. Maybe, maybe it really wasn't that bad, Chris. Maybe it was just a streak of bad luck. Maybe you were just that hard drinker that's in the big book. Maybe, you know, with sufficient reason, you could have quit anyways, you know, and all of a sudden, then my phone will ring at ten o'clock at night and it'll be that girl that has called twenty seven times in the last twenty four hours. And she wants to call and talk about him. Because it's always a him, isn't it, ladies? That's always what we're calling to talk to our sponsor about if we call twenty seven times in twenty four hours. And so all of a sudden I'll look at my phone and I'll think, nah, I don't need to take that. And I won't answer my phone. And all of a sudden when it comes time to go to a meeting, I'll think, you know what? Big meeting, really strong, good meetings, an hour and a half from my house. I live in a small town in Ohio. I don't need to make that journey all the way to that meeting to see those women that are expecting me to be there, and I won't go. And then what will happen is I'll come, too. I won't wake up, but I'll come, too, because some way, somehow, during that time, when suddenly I thought I didn't need you anymore, I'll be struck drunk, because, see, I'm more dangerous to my recovery when everything's going well than I ever am when things are going tough. Because when things are going tough, I do exactly what you guys taught me to do. And my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I double up on my meetings. I call my sponsor twice as much, and I hit my knees till they bleed. But all of a sudden, when everything's going well, I think I got it. So I absolutely have to be strongly sponsored. And I also have another gift in my life as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's that I'm allowed to sponsor other young women. And that keeps me firmly enmeshed in the program of AA, because if I'm sponsoring you, we are somewhere in that book, we are somewhere in the steps, and we are somewhere in the program. And when I'm sponsoring you, it gives me a gift, because I have a front-row seat to miracles every day of my life. One of the beautiful young women that's in my life had lost all four of her children. You know, she had burned her life to the ground, the divorce, all of those kind of things. And right now, I got to be the one that got to put her pin on her when she graduated from nursing school, and she's got all four of her children back. You know, that's what happens in AA. But I'll tell you what, it comes with a price tag. Because you sponsor a lot of people, and it's like having a whole bunch of children with ADD. <laughs> Especially if you go on road trips, if you live in a small town like we do, because we all pile in a tiny little car, and just like Butch was saying, everybody's talking, nobody's listening. And the thing about alcoholics is when you think you aren't listening, what do we do? We don't shut up. We get louder! You know? And so it's like at Mach 27. <laughs> you know as you're driving down the road and and I have this little sobriety car because I used to smoke and I remembered what it was like being new and smoking and and so I let them the new girls smoke in my car as long as they crack the windows and somebody told me once they said Chris your car looks like a steam engine when you pull away from a meeting it's like (gasps) you know and it's just but it's what keeps me here it's what keeps me going it's such a gift it's an absolute gift in my life and you know. What I would tell you is, as honored as I am to be here tonight, the real service to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not standing behind this podium. It's at 3 o'clock in the morning when my phone rings then. Am I willing to suit up and show up when nobody's looking? Am I willing to do the deal when I'm not going to wind up at a beautiful thing like this in a beautiful hotel? Am I willing to get in my car in the middle of the night and drive to see another suffering alcoholic? Am I willing to do it then? That's the real service to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then sometimes the real service, it seems like maybe it has a little bit to do with AA, but not a whole lot. And it winds up being one of the biggest turning points ever in my life. And I'm going to share that story with you, and then I will definitely get to what it was like. that story is several years ago, um, somebody from a neighboring town asked me to come and share my story. And it was on May 4th. And that day may not mean anything to you, but it was a special day to me because that was my dad's birthday. And um, my father, I had found out through the inventory process that I had harmed him deeper than anyone I had ever harmed in my recovery. And so when my, my eyes finally rolled outwards and I started finally asking him about his life, one of the things that I learned about him was that he had been the youngest of four children during the Depression and he had never had a birthday party. And so I made a direct amends to my father, but an ongoing yearly amends that I always made to him was every year on his birthday, I would do something special for him, and I would take him somewhere. One year, I just loaded him in the car and painted on the car windows with that shoe polish stuff, honk, I'm 88, and we drove around the outer belt of Columbus, Ohio, while truckers honked at him, and my dad waved. (laughs) He could barely lift his little arm the next day, Um, but... This particular year, somebody asked me to go share on his birthday, and I said, I never say no to Alcoholics Anonymous, but this is a special day, and I need to talk to my dad. Is that okay with you? And he's in early stages Alzheimer's, so I really want to wait until he has a lucid moment. And, of course, you guys said, absolutely, that's fine. And so that's exactly what I did, and a couple days later, dad was um, in a place where I could talk to him, and I said, Dad, somebody wants me to come and share on your birthday but I want to do whatever it is you want to do. What would you like to do? And without missing a beat, my then almost 90-year-old father said, well, how about dinner and a meeting? I said, all right, Dad, I guess that's what we'll do. See, he loved Alcoholics Anonymous. He had lost his wife, my mother, after they had been married for 52 years as a direct result of the disease of alcoholism. She had died from the DTs in a local hospital. So my dad saw you saving my life, and he absolutely loved you, and he would have done anything for you. And, in fact, back at my home group, he would stand up every year at the anniversary and profess to all of you how amazing you were and what you've done for his daughter and for his whole family. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. They're amazing. But this particular year, like I said, it was his birthday, so I took Dad out to dinner and took him into the meeting, and I'll tell you what, those people in Columbus, Ohio, had read the same big book I read, where it said, we not only show up for the alcoholic, but we show up for the alcoholics' family. We walked into that meeting, and all of you, one person there had known it was my father's birthday, and all of you had banded together and bought my dad a sheet cake, that said, happy birthday Phil on it. And that sucker was this big. You guys had birthday plates, birthday cups, birthday napkins, birthday hats. It's like we even do birthdays alcoholically, don't we? It was everywhere. And my dad walked in and he was precious. He was like, (laughs) he just couldn't believe it. And he had this big old grin of like a five-year-old kid. And then the magic happened. Um, I don't know what it is about alcoholic women and really old men. (laughs) But my dad walked into that meeting, and all you ladies, and I use that term loosely right now, started slithering up to my father and wrapping your little alcoholic bodies around him, and in your Marilyn Monroe voices going, Happy birthday, Phil. And I'm like, oh, that's my dad! I was so creeped out, and here's daddy. I said, My daddy got more action on his 90th birthday in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous than he had had in 40 years. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. The meeting wound up, and my one friend um, that knew me very well from that town went up to my dad, and she said, so, Phil, um, I know that you had never heard Chris's story before. What do you think, your shiny little penny now? And my dad, without missing a beat again, looked right at her and said,
1: Penny, hell, that
0: girl's a quarter. And I'm like, yeah, because I knew how much a quarter was worth in the Depression, right? I was like Bill Wilson in the big book. I had arrived. I was... And that that would have been enough, you know, and I'm telling you that story because you never know. Even when you suit up and show up, even when it's not convenient, you never know what's going to happen and what kind of miracle is going to appear, but now is why I'm really telling you that story. I'm going to fast forward you to two years later. My dad had lost his battle with the disease of Alzheimer's and had crossed over. I'm sitting in my home group, and I'm sad. I'm sad because I'm a human being. I'm missing my father, and I didn't have near enough years to make up for all the harms that I had done him. I'm at peace because I'm a spiritual being. And I'm sitting in that meeting with this duality going on inside of me, and the tears are in my eyes, and I'm thinking about my dad and thinking about how much he loved Alcoholics Anonymous. The meeting's getting ready to wrap up, and I go to slide my shoe on because I'd kicked my shoes off during the meeting. And I feel something in the toe of my shoe. Now the way my alcoholic mind to this day will still work, my first thought is, oh my God, a poisonous spider has climbed into the bottom of my shoe and if I put my foot all the way in there, it will bite the bottom of my foot and I will be dead in two hours. That is my first thought. But you guys have taught me not to listen to that voice. And so instead, I just quietly, without all the drama that was going on in my head, picked up my shoe and reached my hand down. And what I pulled out, two years to the exact day, two years to the exact hour, quite possibly two years to the exact minute, was this. And it was the shiniest quarter I had ever laid eyes on. You can come up with your own story about how quarter jumped off a table, underneath a table, and into the toe of a little pointy shoe during a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, I can tell you how it got there. It got there through the grace and the power of a loving God that I didn't even believe in when I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was nothing any one of you could have done to convince me that that power existed. And now a few short 24 hours later, there's absolutely nothing you can do to convince me that power doesn't exist. And I thank you so much. You know, when I walked in here to all of you, I had an idea of God. What you taught me was I had to have an experience of God. And I could go on, just like Butch said, for the next couple of hours and share those experiences of God. And if you have not had one yet, please stick around because they will happen and they are indeed miraculous and they are indeed quite often unexplainable like quarters in my shoe. And the truth is today I have a stack of quarters this big that has shown up in just such miraculous ways. One day I was having a kind of a tough day and I made my bed and I walked out into the kitchen and I walked back in because I'd forgotten something in my bedroom and I had just made my bed and right in the middle of my bed was a quarter. I mean, it just keeps happening it just keeps showing up. But, um, you yeah, that certainly wasn't the woman that appeared to all of you 19 years ago. The woman that appeared to you, I am that real alcoholic that is outlined in the big book. And consumption of liquor is just a symptom of what's wrong with me. And my main problem center is right here in my mind. So I always had this crazy mind that was telling me, you're not enough, Chris. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not athletic enough. You're not whatever it was I saw in you. There was no way that I could measure up. And then this other voice would swoop in and be like, what do you mean you're not enough? They're always telling you're too much. They're always telling you're too loud, you're too rowdy, you're too desperate, you're too needy, you're too emotional, you're too angry, you're too bitter, you're too violent. I don't remember him ever saying you're too nice. But even if somebody had said that to me, the way my mind works, it would have been what our friend Ed M always used to talk about. And that was the 299 to 1 theory. If there was 300 people in this room and 299 of them said, "Chris, I love you. I'm so glad we met," and then one of them came up to me and said, "I don't like your shoes." Guess who now owns my life? Guess who I am thinking about morning, noon, and night? Guess who I am having conversations with at 3 a.m. that you do not have the ability to be at? And guess who's winning all those arguments? Right? And you know what happens to a person like me? In about six weeks, I'm in enough pain, I'm writing inventory on you. And in about eight weeks, I'm calling somebody up in Minnesota saying, did you see that girl in the yellow shirt that didn't like my shoes? Do you know how I can find her? Because I need to make amends to her for all the things I've been saying about her for the last eight weeks. You know, That is how fast my mind will just go off and run. You can own my life. And I used to walk into a room full of people like this, and I literally believed I could look you in the eyes, read your mind, and I knew what you were thinking about me. And I knew what you were thinking about me wasn't nice, but you didn't know that I knew what you were thinking about me, because I would walk into a room looking kind of like my dad when he had Alzheimer's, walking in gun. How's it going? How's it going? What's happening, everybody? And it wasn't that there was anything happy, joyous, and free inside of me. It was that somewhere along the lines, I got this crazy idea that if you saw how dark and how black and how broken it was inside of me, you'd recoil in horror and run right out that door. And there was only one thing worse to me than being in a room with all of you and what you were thinking about me, and that was being in a room alone with me and what I'm thinking about me. Because, see, what you think about me might be mean, but what I think about me is absolutely deadly. But at 14 years old, all that changed. At 14, my first experience with as much alcohol as I could possibly put into my system. I had had some experiences before that. I ran around with five other young ladies in my hometown. We'd be 11, 12 years old, and we'd con somebody into buying us a six-pack. So we would each get a beer. Now, my girlfriends were all normal drinkers, as normal as you can be at 11 years old. And they'd be about halfway through their beer and they'd be having a normal reaction to alcohol. They'd be getting giggly, they'd be getting flirty, they'd be having fun. I'm halfway through my beer and I'm starting to do this because I know there's only a half a beer left. So then that keen, alcoholic mind is kicking in already. And so I have this one girlfriend and her name's Jerry and let's just say that she got real friendly at a real young age with a lot of young men. Okay? And so I would run over to Jerry and I would say, Hey Jerry, you see Bobby over there in the corner? And she'd be like, Yeah, he is so cute You know, and I'd be like, He thinks you're cute. Now I hadn't talked to Bobby all night. And then I'd run over to Bobby, and I'd go, Bobby, you see Jerry over there in the corner? And he'd be like, yeah, because he knew Jerry's reputation. And I'd say, Jerry thinks you're cute. And he'd be like, all right. And so next thing you know, those two are hooking up and leaving the room, and I get the rest of their beer. So the truth is, at 11 years old, I am pimping out my girlfriends for alcohol. And that is exactly how I continued to drink the rest of the time that I drank. I could have cared less if I sold my soul. I could care less if I sold your soul. I did whatever it was that I needed to do. But then this particular night when I was 14 years old, like I said, I had as much alcohol as I could put into my system. And what happened to me that night is I found the higher power I didn't even know I was looking for. See, alcohol, I got just enough in me that it took that not enough and brought it right up to just enough. Took the too much, brought it right down to just enough. For the first time ever, I could look you in the eyes. For the first time ever, I walked into a room full of people and I could have cared less what you were thinking about me. See, alcohol did for me what I was never able to do for myself. Alcohol changed my perception of me. And when my perception of me changed, then my perception of you changed. And when my perception of me and you changed, all was right with my world and I was happy, joyous, and free. And what I did was I went on a 20-year pilgrimage to recapture that bliss that I felt that very first night. And if you're an alcoholic of my type, you know exactly what happened. I never quite got there again. I would get right up to that feeling and couldn't quite get there, and I would just dig in and leave claw marks in everyone and everything around me. Or I would zoom right through that feeling into consequences. Because I was that girl. I was always in trouble. I was the girl that drank, got drunk, threw up. I think Butch and I hung out together, to be honest. But um, it was like I was just that one. I was always sick. And I was always in trouble. I had those hangovers that were like a near-death experience. And I just was miserable all the time. And I didn't have a problem with any of that. I didn't have a problem with being in pain. I didn't have a problem with being in trouble. And I sure didn't have a problem with being sick. The only problem I have with alcohol is that it wore off. Because when alcohol wore off, all that madness in my head would start again. And the best way I've ever found to describe what happens in my head, unless it's full of alcohol or Alcoholics Anonymous, is many years ago now, my dad got my son a hamster for Christmas. At that time, they had a little metal cage with a little metal wheel, and no matter how much you would oil that wheel, they squeak. And I remember watching that hamster, and he jumped on the wheel, and they run, 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 and I remember thinking, that hamster is so silly. Why does he just keep going around doing the same thing over and over again, right? Right? And then I thought, okay, well, at nightfall, that little guy has got to stop. I'll turn off the lights. So I turned off the lights that night, and that is when I learned that hamsters, just like my alcoholism, are nocturnal little rodents. We both come to life at night. I turned off the lights, and I swear I heard that little hamster throw his arms up in the air and yell, party! And he jumped on that wheel, and they run, 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 they run all night long in circles and get absolutely nowhere. That is how my head works, unless it's either full of alcohol or Alcoholics Anonymous. So I started being willing to go to any lengths to do whatever it was to get whatever I needed to get. I'll just tell you that every door that was marked no by society's standards that I thought would change me from the neck up. I ran to the door, threw it open, jumped in and tried it. I was constantly looking for something that would give me a lasting permanent effect that alcohol would give me on a temporary basis. And I never could find it. Somewhere along the lines, I got this crazy idea that the right relationship would fix me. Now, I don't know where I got this idea. I had never been in a healthy relationship. I had never even witnessed a healthy relationship. You know, and so I'm just running through all these lives. And to give you a snapshot of what these relationships look like, it's a Friday night just like this. We've been drinking for a few hours. We've come back to my apartment, and we're sitting in on the couch getting all cozy like you do. And one minute I'm whispering sweet, nothing's into your ear. And the next minute I have that personality change that the big book talks about. And all of a sudden, instead of whispering in your ear, I am going, I hate you! Get out of my life! I don't ever want to see you again, you dirty, rotten! Beep, beep, beep! All the words I can't say from behind the podium. Um, And then before your car has backed itself all the way out of the parking place from in front of my apartment, I have now run out the front door, thrown myself, spread eagle superhero style, on the hood of your car, and I'm screaming, why are you leaving me? I love you! And I can't figure out why you guys always left. Honest to God, it took me three inventories to see the nature of the problem with me. Um my sponsor still loves that one. She's just like, I never saw anybody quite that blind in my life. And um but yeah, and so let's just say I became quite um, active. I just kept thinking that I could find that right relationship that would fix me. And so by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had been married and divorced three times. I became quite the serial marrier. Um, And I did it one more time in recovery, just to see if I was good at it, and I wasn't. Um, And But what I've learned is that all those relationships, they were just another symbol of the disease of alcoholism i was trying to find something on the outside to fix what was broken on the inside of me and what i've learned through strong sponsorship in the 12 steps of alcoholics anonymous is that we don't attract what we want we attract what we are and if i want something better in my life then i need to change And I was taught that through my family of sponsorship, and I absolutely hope that's true, because there is a gentleman that is here with me this evening, and he's 24 years sober, and his name is Bob, and we have been together for several years now. He is the absolute love of my life, and he is the most kind, gentle, gracious, strong, wonderful man that I have ever known. So if we truly do attract what we are, not what we want, then the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has worked miracles inside of me. I also did learn that it would be the right relationship that would fix me. I had just always had the wrong partner. See, my number one partner had to be a power greater than human aid. I had to make God the number one power in my life, and amazing things began to happen when I did that. All of the cheap drama that had been in my life and the people that weren't supposed to be in my life, they pretty quickly just drifted away. And the people that were supposed to be in my life, it was like somebody opened a floodgate and they all came in. But that certainly wasn't the woman that I was then. The woman that I was then, the last man that I drew into my alcoholic pit of insanity, was a very successful businessman. And I looked at him and I thought, he's got all the stuff. That's what will fix me. All i got to do is get all the stuff. See, I bought Society's Lie if I had the right house, the right car, and the right stuff then it would fix everything that was broken inside of me. I had absolutely no idea I was already dying of untreated alcoholism. And this man, he would take me to these business cocktail parties. And if any of you have ever had the delight to go to one of those, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody hands you a little tiny plastic cup about this big, they fill it full of ice cubes, somebody waves a liquor bottle over the top of it, and the fumes that fall in, they call it a drink. Now, I am living under the illusion our book talks about at that time that I can drink like a normal person. I walk into this party, I'm full of self-centered fear and self-pity, and I only have one tool in my toolkit at that time, and that's called alcohol. So that's exactly what I do is I put those... That cup of fumes to my lips, I get it into my system, it kicks off the phenomenon of craving and I'm off and running. And next thing you know, I've got that hamster, it's back in my head and it's starting to chatter at me. And it's saying, You can get past him and over there to that bar and you can grab that bottle of whiskey and take it into the bathroom and chug that baby down. That's what'll make you feel better. But you better take a two liter bottle of pop in there with you at the same time because you gotta refill that bottle of whiskey, because you don't want anybody seeing you doing that, because then they might think you have a problem and So here I am at a business cocktail party like this, having a conversation with a hamster in my head thinking it's perfectly normal <laughs> that everybody does this, right? But instead what happens, I'm full of self-centered fear and self-pity. I'm trying to sip and socialize in an occasion that I absolutely am incapable of doing. I take one of those little plastic cups. I crushed it in my hand, and it was at that time that I found out that if you crush a plastic cup in your hand at a business cocktail party and liquor runs down your arm, they find it socially unacceptable for you to go like this and lick it off. Who knew? Um, I had my last finger in my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, you got to get what's under the fingernail. You don't want to miss any. When I saw him... And his face was bright red in that vein that you men have in your forehead. Um, I made it appear on a moment's notice, and it looked like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It was like, bam, 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 bam. And I said my first ever sincere prayer right then, and it was, Dear God, please let his head explode because I don't know how to get out of this. That was the best I had. I did not have tools to effectively deal with when I made mistakes. I did not have that filter that normal people have that says, you know, that might not be a good idea. You might not want to do that. It's just whatever comes to my mind, I just do it. And then I spend the next hour, the next day, or the next decade trying to figure out how to undo whatever it is that I did. Now, needless to say, I never got invited to another business cocktail party um, by my husband. But I go home, and I've always got a plan. See, not only am I under that illusion our book talks about, I live under the delusion our book talks about, that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I just manage well. So I look at it, and I'm like, okay, i got the hem, i got the house, i got the stuff, what could possibly be missing. And the only thing that I could come up with was a child. So that's exactly what I did, was I got pregnant on purpose to fix what was broken inside of me, and I didn't even know what that was. And... So I did my best not to drink during that pregnancy, and I thought, okay, this will be this will be it. This is what will be, will fix me. And what happened to me, I would love to tell you that I had that little boy, and they laid him in my arms, and I had that aha moment, and everything changed. But that's not my story. What happened to me was they laid that little boy in my arms that night, that little boy that I wanted more than life itself. And at a deep, visceral level that I could not explain to you then, but I certainly can explain to you now, I had an internal knowing that said a baby's shoulders are entirely too tiny to carry the disease of alcoholism on, much less a program of recovery. What have you done this time? How can you get out of this one? And I took that little boy home, and I made that vow. I was going to be the best mom ever. I was going to do everything. There was no way he was going to grow up the way I did in that alcoholic home. And I did my best, and I tried as hard as I possibly could, and I'm trying not to drink, and I'm trying with everything I have, and I don't have a sufficient substitute, and I don't have a program of recovery. And what happens to an alcoholic of my type, when you just try not to pour alcohol into us, and you don't have a sufficient substitute, I don't get better, I get worse. My best attempt at recovery on my own got me locked up in a psychiatric unit under a suicide watch that included papers that said I was a threat to myself and all of society, including that little boy that I brought into this world to fix me. See, I don't get better. I get dangerous when you just take alcohol out of my system because alcohol is my solution. It's not my problem. My problem is my complete inability to live life on life's terms. And I was eventually released into my husband's care from that hospital, and he couldn't stand being around me very long because, see, I don't have a sufficient substitute. I don't have a program of recovery. I grew up in a home where the only tool that you had was he who yelled the loudest one. And so now I don't have any tools, and I'm trying not to drink, and I'm trying to be this good person, and I can't do it. And when I am not full of alcohol, my character defects rule my life. And I am chasing you around, and I'm two feet behind you at all times because I'm trying to make you my God, and I'm like that little guy on the Verizon commercial, and I'm screaming at you, Can you hear me now? 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 Because I am demanding that you meet my needs. And if you don't meet my needs, then I just get more abrasive and I get more aggressive and I can't understand that why even if I'm not drinking, I am literally and figuratively running people right out of my life again and throwing myself still on hoods of cars. I can't understand possibly what's going on. I eventually ran that guy right out of my life and I climbed right back into the bottle. Now, I can't tell you whether I had a conscious thought whether I was going to drink or not drink, but I know if I did, my thought would have gone something like this. See, I was trying not to drink, and he still left. Obviously, alcohol wasn't the problem. He was. And I crack it open, I pour it in, and the problems are solved. At least that's what I thought. I was looking for a little bit of relief. I had always been one of those wild child drinkers. I'd always been a blackout drinker. I'd always been one of those just wild, out loud drinkers. But what happened to me now was I put alcohol back into my system and I awakened a beast that I didn't even know existed inside of me. I am a firm believer that this disease continues to grow and multiply when it's left untreated. And that's exactly what happened to me, was I began drinking with a level of unmanageability in my life such as I had never known. All of a sudden, I was starting out drinking in my little hometown in Coshocton, Ohio, and I would wind up and I would come to three days later in Pennsylvania. And I start drinking in my little hometown, and then all of a sudden I come to and I'm in a tent in Tennessee. You know, I'm that girl that I just drink every... and I just... I'm a traveling drunk, and then all of a sudden... I come to, or I come out of a blackout, and I'm down on Ohio State campus, and I'm surrounded by people and guns and knives and weapons. And I have no idea how I got there and who any of these people are. See, I'm that girl that I can't tell you what's going to happen. And I start drinking down, and I start drinking down, and I start drinking down. And I am just like they talk about in the big book, and I was gone beyond recall in a very short time. And I would love to tell you that it was just by some act of grace that I appeared here, but it wasn't. It was through the grace and the power of a loving God that I appeared in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you see, I didn't even know Alcoholics Anonymous existed in my hometown. But there was a power underfoot that I didn't even know existed, and it was going on long before I got here. Because, see, there was a gentleman in my hometown, and he had been watching me, and he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was watching alcohol steal everything that was good, right, and true in my life. He had seen that alcoholism had stolen everything that was internally and emotionally strong and good. He was watching it now begin to affect my body. My eyes were starting to turn yellow. My skin was starting to turn gray, and I was beginning to bloat up from the effects of chronic alcoholism. And that little boy that I brought into this world to fix me that I wanted to take care of more than anything in the world and be a good mom, I couldn't do it any longer. And I was leaving that little boy in places that a little boy should never be left in. And he was being left with people that a little boy should never be left with. And things were happening to him that should never happen to a little boy. You know, And all I wanted was to be a good mom. And instead, I'm the mom that I try and play ball with him on a Saturday morning, and I go outside, and, you know, I've got my last beer, and I'm just shaking, and I've got to get that in me, or I can't even function. And he's two years old at the time, and he knocks the beer over with his ball, and what do I do? It's all over a black... a that concrete stoop covered with dirt and rocks and filth, and I scoop that beer right back into that cup, and I put that up to my lips, and I'm shaking as if my life depended on it, and I look at that little boy, and I see him as he's watching his mom ingest dirt and rocks and filth as if her life depended on it. What I know to be true today is that my life did depend on that at that time. There were so many other things that happened during that time. All I can tell you is that I did everything that a woman does, everything that a woman needs to do to get what a woman needs to get. A lot of that stuff is fifth-step stuff. What I will tell you now is how that man got a hold of me um, from Alcoholics Anonymous. As I said, I was in my hometown, didn't even know that you existed. He saw me one day on the streets. And he handed me his business card, and on the front of it, it had his name and phone number, and on the back, it had the crisis hotline. And my alcoholic arrogance, I threw it on my kitchen counter that day, and I thought, what do I need this for? And the day eventually came when the things had gotten so dark and so black and so ugly that I saw that business card, and I picked it up, and I picked up the phone and called him. And I said, hi, Jerry, this is Chris, and I think I need some help. And he said, Chris, are you ready to quit drinking? And I said, Jerry, I don't know if I'm ready to quit drinking, but I'm ready to quit suffering. See, I had been trying to quit drinking for 20 years. And thank God Jerry understood the disease of alcoholism because he knew I couldn't promise him that I would never drink again. Jerry, 12, stepped me into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous from that very meeting. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell you his story. Because that very night, Jerry was six years away from his last drink. He had been a potter by trade and had crippled both of his hands in a car accident and could no longer create his art. He had cried out to the God of his understanding, if this is all there is to sobriety, I might as well drink. And within 30 seconds, the phone rang and I was asking for help. Jerry just celebrated 25 years of continuous sobriety. You see, that phone call may have had nothing to do with my recovery. It may have had everything to do with his. And that's why when the girls that I sponsor say, Man, I hate to call you. I know how busy you are. I'm like, Call me, please. You have no idea what may be going through my head. Because that's the type of alcoholic I am. I have been to those dark, horrific places while taking up a seat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Jerry 12 stepped me into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I absolutely loved what I saw. And it wasn't that you're all happy, joyous, and free. It was that there was about 30 people in the room, and they all appeared to be men. I was shopping for my next ex-husband at my first AA meeting. Um, I found him there all right, too, let me tell you. And, and I'll tell you about that. You know, I said, you attract what you are, not what you want? The first guy that asked me out in AA, this will give you a snapshot of who I was, he was a guy that sat in the back of the room, and there were napkins, and he would tear up the napkins and make these little paper mountains, and at that time, you could smoke in the meetings, and so he would take the little paper mountain and light it on fire, and it would go whoosh in the back of the meeting. That was the first guy that asked me out. Um, the long timers taught me how to deal with things like that, though, because they would get up, they'd walk over, they'd pour their coffee on his flaming paper mountain, and the meeting would go on. And I would be like, "Oh my gosh, yeah." So, you know, those were the roots of my recovery. Um, but, like I said, I had that first meeting, and I thought they all were men, but then I saw her. But she was sitting clear up front. She appeared to be 112 years old, so I quickly wrote her off as competition. Um, little did I know she had been waiting on me, and she came scurrying back to the back of that room and stuck her hand out and said, Hi, I'm Mary Kay, and I'll be your sponsor. Now, I didn't know that wasn't really how it normally works. Um, but I'm like, okay, I didn't know what a sponsor was, I didn't know what the heck was going on, and then she started talking to me about all kinds of things, and she started talking to me about this God of her understanding, and, and she was so sweet about it that I didn't have the heart to tell her, I'm sorry, but I can't believe in things I don't see. And what I would notice, though, is when she'd talk about it, I mean, she'd get this really funky twinkle in her eyes, and I'd be like, wow, that's pretty cool, you know. And then um, she started talking to me about the program, and I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't even know what the word program meant at my first meeting, you know. and So I just stood there, and I kind of listened, and I was afraid to ask. I was afraid to ask any questions because I was convinced if I didn't pretend like I knew, you'd run me out of the rooms. And what I've learned today is I took fake it to you make it to an art form, and it almost killed me. Fake it to you make it's a great concept, but you have to be telling somebody the truth. Because what I did would be no different than if I would walk outside this hotel tonight and get shot by a drive-by shooter and get a hole blown in my chest, and I cover it up like this with both my hands and walk into your local ER... And I say to the triage nurse, excuse me, but I have a little scratch here on my chest. Could I have somebody take a look at me? She's going to tell me, yeah, go right out there in our waiting room, have a seat. We'll be with you as soon as we can. And three hours later, they're going to find me dead in their waiting room. That is no fault of theirs. That is the fault of mine because I didn't tell them the true nature of my injuries. And that's exactly what I was doing in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I became a spiritual parasite. I would memorize what you said about your God, and then I would spit it back at you at the next meeting that I went to, and I sounded real good. And there's a problem with that is Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual way of life, and you can't live a spiritual way of life based on a lie. And at four years away from my last drink, After being very active in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I found myself laying on my bedroom floor, soaked in my own sweat, wrapped in a purple robe, shaken worse than I had ever shook while I was out there on any drunken bend. And what happened to me is I'm laying on that bedroom floor, and I have a thought that's very similar to Jerry's, but mine is, if this is all there is to recovery, I might as well eat a bullet. At four years away from my last drink, I find myself laying on my bedroom floor with a handgun, thinking there's no other way out. And I thought Alcoholics Anonymous only worked for you, and it obviously didn't work for me. What I know to be true now is I was trying to stay sober on the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was practicing what I now call Buffet AA. I would do a little bit of this step and a little bit of that step and a little bit of this step, just enough to get by and what happened to me was I was dying of untreated alcoholism because I am a firm believer that we have to have that experience of God, not just an idea of God, to have that spiritual awakening that's absolutely necessary to recover from the disease of alcoholism. But as I was laying on that bedroom floor, I had done one thing right. I'd never quit going to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd never quit going to meetings, and I had missed a few meetings. And guess what? My phone rang and you, were, you came looking for me. See, I don't buy the lie when we say if they want what we have, they'll call us. Because I was laying on my bedroom floor dying of untreated alcoholism, unable to pick up the phone. And thank God you called me. And it was that Jerry guy again, the same one that 12-stepped me into AA. And he said, Chris, how you doing? And I'll tell you what, when they ask you that, they already know. And Jerry called a woman from a neighboring town that was 30 miles away. And she came and got me, and on the way to a meeting, she said, I'll tell you what, you're going to get in this meeting, you're going to get real, and you're going to get honest. And I finally had the desperation absolutely necessary for an alcoholic agnostic of my type to, be, to A, become willing to believe, and B, to take some action based on that willingness. And so that's exactly what I did, and I shared everything I felt, thought, knew, and believed in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Went back home, and they made me get real and get honest with my sponsor. It wasn't long after that that she took critically ill, and she said, you've got to go find somebody to help you, or you are never going to make it. And so I went over to, back to Columbus, where my dad lived, and I took a week's vacation off work, because you guys have made me employable. And I went to every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I could get to. And any woman that would look my way, I was like the AA octopus. I was like, help me! I did not care at that point what you thought of me any longer. I was absolutely desperate. I had the desperation of a dying man. And what happened was God put the right group of women with the right message at the right time in my life. And they showed me how they walked through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, how they started on the title page. And I took their message back home with me to the, there were three other women in my hometown that were suffering and dying just like I was. And I said, they tell me if we do what this book says, that we're going to be okay, what do we have to lose? And so that's exactly what we did was we got together at each other's house for two, three, four hours at a time. We were the biggest bucket of sick you ever laid eyes on. I mean, there was like a fist fight in my driveway. We had kids running everywhere. It was just crazy. But we did one thing right. Before we got together, each week we prayed to a God that not a one of us believed in. And what I know to be true is we started on the title page, and when that book asked us a question, we answered it to each other. When it told us to pray, we prayed. When it told us to write, we wrote. And when it told us to share, we shared. What I know for a fact from personal experience is when willingness and action come together, God's grace literally erupts. That was 15 years ago and three out of the four of us have maintained continuous sobriety in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You may have a 75% success rate in Minneapolis, but I know we sure don't back home. So when somebody calls me a big book thumper, I say thank you because that's the best plan that I have. See, I don't sober anybody up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing I do is walk them through our program of action that will hopefully lead them to the power that will sober them up and keep them sober. I would love to tell you that I've skipped Happy, joyous, and Free through my recovery ever since then, but that isn't the truth. You know, but because of all of you... I was able to buy a house, a little tiny house for my son and I at a few years sober. And um, what happened, it was a beat-up little house. You know, it was pretty bad. It had red shag carpeting in it this thick in the living room. I always said you could have murdered somebody in there and not left a bit of evidence. And, you know, the cupboards were like, they were that press board, and it had wood grain contact paper on them. It was nice. And taught my son a new game, and it was called Grab the Bucket every time it rained. But you know what? It was our house. And it was a home. We finally had a home. And at seven years um, away from my last drink, that house burned down due to an electrical fire. I thought it was the worst thing that could have ever possibly happen. I stomped my feet like an immature little sober alcoholic and said, why me? I'm doing all this stuff in AA. Yeah, and that was my response to that. And it wound up being the biggest gift wrapped in sorrow I've ever had. Because what happened was I was still struggling with a personal relationship with God, with a God of my understanding. And where I wound up moving to was out in the woods. It was out in the mid- the country, out in the middle of the woods. and. My family of sponsorship at that time required that we read all AA literature. And in one of the books that I read, Bill Wilson talked about it in Language of the Heart, where if he couldn't calm his mind down and couldn't get quiet and develop that relationship, he'd do a hiking meditation. And lo and behold, I landed right next to a nature preserve. So that's what I would do when I would be restless, irritable, and discontent. I would go out into those woods, and I would hike, and I would walk, and I would pray, and I would talk. And this one day, I was particularly restless, irritable, and discontent, trying to figure out how to undo some of the things I had done early in sobriety, because I was that girl. I was the girl, if you're thinking I'm standing up here and I did everything right now, I was the girl that stole the money out of the kitty when I was your group secretary. I was the girl that, you know, slept her way through half of AA or first year sober. I was the girl who did all those things that we shouldn't do, you know. And thank God we have a program of recovery, though, that can turn all of that around. But at this particular time, I was still trying to clean up some of the wreckage of my early sobriety, and I'm stomping through those woods, and I hear this. I'm like, oh, my God, what is that? What is that? And I can't figure out what it is. And I'm looking around, I'm looking around, I can't figure out what it is, and I hear this like, oh my God, what is that? And I don't know if I thought it was an attacker and he's knocking to let me know he's there. You know, I don't know what my head was thinking. But all of a sudden, I had a spiritual awakening right that fast. And what happened was, I realized that knocking, it was a woodpecker. And I had to get still and I had to get quiet to know that's what it was. And that's exactly what I had done, as I had gotten still, and I had gotten quiet. But you know what? Just knowing it's a woodpecker, that was not enough, because I'm an alcoholic. I want to see the woodpecker, right? Truth is, I want to pet the woodpecker. <laughs> so I start walking around trying to find this woodpecker, and then I realize he's down in this tree snag, and I can't see him, and I'm really disappointed, But then it happens again that fast, I have another spiritual awakening, because what I do see are all the holes that he's drilled in that tree. And I realize that that woodpecker is just like the God that all of you have been trying to teach me about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I may not be able to actually see him, but if I just look close enough, I can see where he's left his mark. And that's what happens to me in every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why even in a room this large, I try and look around and take a look at each and every person because that is exactly where I see the God of my understanding. And I had an experience that made that so several years ago. I was at a big book workshop. It was one of the first ones I had ever been at. And all of a sudden, Ed M., again, he was talking, and he was in this town, and I looked at him. And all of a sudden, I saw that same twinkle ...that I had seen in the eyes of Mary Kay that very first night that we met. And I had a sudden knowing that that twinkle was God in another human being. And I began to cry and I began to weep. And I'm not a pretty crier. My son calls me the hyena crier. I'm that girl (laughs) that's... You know, and within seconds I have snot pouring out my nose and Alice Cooper makeup. And, you know, I'm just like the crazy girl... And so I go running up to Ed when he was done, and I ran up to him. I said, Ed, I saw God in you. I saw God in you. And he took his great big giant hands and wrapped them around mine, and he said, sweetheart, the only thing that you see in me is a direct reflection of what already lives in you. And right then I had this spiritual experience that in my chest where I told you that dark and that black and that ugly lived, there was a physical sensation that literally I felt it just go whoosh, and it closed up. And I have never since had a dark, black, and ugly pit so deep. As long as I stay close to all of you, as long as I stay close and enmeshed in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But that isn't to say that everything has gone wonderful. Like I said, I'm just not that girl. At over a decade of sobriety, my Life looked like a bad country song. In a very short time, my dog died, my dad died. I got divorced and moved into a single wide trailer where you couldn't make a pot of coffee and take a shower at the same time or the well would quit. You would... You would think nobody would want what I have, but the truth is, is I sponsored more young women at that point in my life than I've ever sponsored, and I believe that's twofold. It's because God always gives me one more woman than I think I need to keep me out of me. And the other one was, as they told me later, they were watching me, and all that stuff was going on in my life, and I was still showing up at meetings. I was still answering my phone. I was still holding up my service commitments. And what I learned during that time through strong sponsorship and a loving God is that my mistakes become my lessons, my lessons become my experience, my experience becomes my strength, and if I share that with you either one on one or at an event such as this, it might become your hope. And is that not why we're all here tonight is just for a little bit more hope? My job's just not to abort the process. My job is to practice these principles in all my affairs and carry this message to other suffering alcoholics. And I have learned that sometimes other alcoholics just aren't ready for this message. Sometimes the best 12th step I can do is a good 11th step. Because even tonight, you may reject my suggestions. You may even refuse the love that I have tried to offer all of you. But what I know to be true is you're absolutely defenseless against my prayers. And tonight, when I go back to my hotel room and hit my knees and do my nightly review and say my evening prayers, that is when you'll get the best that Chris Campbell has to offer for your recovery. It was one-on-one when I'm alone with my creator. That is when I will give you the absolute best that I have. And... I've also learned that we have to, as I said, practice these principles in all of our affairs. And I'll try and wrap this up because I know it's late. um, With one of my favorite stories, there's so many, but this one really was a turning point in my recovery, and this was several years ago. That son of mine that I told you about that I absolutely tried to destroy, you know, I had lost the power of choice when he was a little boy and I could not not drink I had reached that place in my alcoholism but the I believe the real crime is that everybody that loves us loses the power of choice as well and the beautiful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is is just like our book says the age of miracles is still amongst us and if we just stay sober long enough unbelievable and miraculous things can happen and um... You know, I never know what story to tell because there's just absolutely so many, especially when it comes to my son. But for some reason tonight I'm feeling moved to tell this one, and that was just this happened um, two years ago now. And I became a grandmother, but what happened was... um, This is a total alcoholic story. You gotta love it. Um, but my son, he had moved to Missouri to follow his dreams. I meant Cleveland. He went to Missouri. Um, but, so it was a bad night. It was a bad storm. And they gave, well, the morning of, they gave me a call and they said, you know, the baby's coming. I'm like, okay. And so I didn't have a car that was actually good enough to drive all the way to Missouri. So I went to get this rental car that I had all lined up. And so I jump in the rental car, and I'm driving, I'm trying to go to Missouri, and it's a winter storm, and all this stuff is going on, and man, I got to put my foot in the gas. And all of a sudden, that's when I learned that some rental cars have governors on them. And all of a sudden, at 80 miles an hour, it starts saying, whoop, 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 engine will shut down, engine will shut down. I'm like, I'm an alcoholic, right? I'm going, they're kidding. Ah! Boom! They aren't kidding. They mean it. So... I am driving in a blinding snowstorm, and I'm not embellishing this. This is very true. I am driving in this blinding snowstorm. There are cars all over. I mean, there are carnage everywhere. I'm driving from Ohio to Missouri. The entire time I am listening to, engine will shut down. Engine will shut down because I have my foot in the gas, you know, and I'm just, there are trucks going off the road. I'm driving like mad. Let's just say I'm not real spiritually fit about halfway there. So then three-quarters of the way there, I get into the very last town that I have to get before I get to my son. It's still two hours away. She's still in labor. The baby isn't coming. My son is on the phone going, Will you get here? I swear this baby's waiting for you. You know, and so I'm driving as fast as I can, and this car pulls out in front of me on this snow-covered road, and I'm so spiritual. What do I do? I go right up on his bumper. I'm like, oh, you know, and... That's when I see that Alcoholics Anonymous is everywhere. What does it say on the bumper sticker? Easy does it. (laughs) One car in the entire town in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, has an easy does it bumper sticker. I pulled my foot off the gas and I said... I heard you loud and clear. <laughs> I drove slowly and safely the rest of the way, and what I can tell you is I ran into the hospital, and I was the first one that got to hold that little baby. You know, and that's how it works in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> My son, his life I tried to single-handedly ruin and destroy He waited until his mom got there to let anybody hold the baby. That's what all of you do for people like me. But I'll tell you what, that little girl, she's a tiny little blonde-haired, blue-eyed firecracker, and she's just like her grandma, so please save her a seat. My my son was effortless to raise. He was a wonderful young man. He never gave me any trouble. And one day I was at his house, and he looked at me, and he looked at her, and he said, What is that? You know, and I just looked at him I said, sometimes it skips a generation. (laughs) That's all I know. Um, But I could go on and on, like I said, for a couple hours and tell you the amazing, miraculous, and beautiful stories that have happened, not only with my son, but with everyone else. You know, and those would certainly be payment enough for anything I've ever done in Alcoholics Anonymous. But probably the thing that I am most delighted about is that no longer do I have to believe in things that I can't see. Because whether it's over a cup of coffee one-on-one with you or at an event as grand as this, every time I'm with someone in Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to look directly into the eyes of God. And it's for that reason that I'll go anywhere and do anything for AA. Thank you very much.